0: The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. All right, I want to ask us a little bit of a depressing question, but a little bit of a reality check as well. So assuming that we have a josh style size, Lord willing on the front end of this question, Lord willing, how many people are going to remember you in 50 years? 50 years from now, probably some of us will have passed. Some of us will be in a ripe old age. How many people are going to remember us? 50 years from now, think about 100 years from now, 150 years from now, 200 years from now, how many people are going to remember you? maybe maybe reverse the question. How many people do you remember? How many generations that have come before us do you know? How many generations can you name in your family's line? My name is Aaron Douglas Markham. I'm named for my great-grandfather on my mom's side, Leland Aaron Cochran, and my great-grandmother on my dad's side. No idea her first name. I uh, just know her uh, maiden name was Douglas, and so that is my name i think it 's my great grandmother i 'm actually not even really sure. So some of you may know your backgrounds and your generations way better than I do. I can only go to about my great-grandparents, and that's it. In one of my classes in seminary, we had an Indian brother in the class, and we did kind of this exercise, how far back you could go. And he was able to name like, he, he didn't name them before us, but he was able to remember like 50 or 75 generations of his family. So obviously a very different culture, a very different depiction But I think the point reigns true here in the Western culture in America. Maybe you're different than me. Maybe my mom and dad can name a few more people than I'm able to name. But go back four, five, six generations, and there's no no memory of my family. It's all vapor. It's all hevel. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. Think about how many people do we remember from history. You're you're probably able, you probably took some history classes growing up, you're able to name a number of reasonable historical figures, maybe more so in recent years. I did a little bit of a Google search this week, and Time Magazine, uh, maybe back a decade ago, published the 100 most significant or memorable historical figures, And just so you know that the the study and the list is totally legitimate, here's one paragraph that it it wrote in the preliminary work. To fairly compare contemporary figures like Britney Spears, against the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle, so we're battling out Britney Spears and Aristotle, we adjusted for the fact that today's stars will fade from living memory over the next several generations. I love this phrase. Intuitively, it is clear that Britney Spears' mind share will decline substantially over the next hundred years. I don't know if that's arguable or not. It's probably not arguable. It's just going to fade. Britney Spears is going to go into nobody's memory As people who grew up hearing her are replaced by new generations. Probably some of these girls sitting up here in the front don't even know who Britney Spears is. Um, And it's just fading away, passing right before us. But Aristotle's reputation will be much more stable because the transition occurred long ago. So it's good to know in this study in history, it's a really good research study, Aristotle is more significant than Britney Spears, just so everyone is totally clear. John, I'm going to grab this handheld. To... So, sorry, I'm way louder than Abby. My bad. I always come in the hottest. you got to tell people to lower the mic for me. The ranking from 10 to 1 of time's most historical figures, Thomas Jefferson, Alexander the Great, Aristotle, Adolf Hitler, George Washington, Britney Spears... No, totally kidding. Abraham Lincoln, William Shakespeare, Muhammad, Napoleon, and Jesus. To be honest, Napoleon being number two was very surprising to me. I wasn't even really sure. I thought he lived in Russia. I Googled it this week. He's clearly a French revolution guy. I don't know anything, but he's very significant. Trust me. So we know the names of some of these guys. You know, that's totally awesome. But does the legacy of any of these men actually affect us today? Well, yes, the number one figure is Jesus. So the Sunday school answer is Jesus. It does affect us. The reason we're here is because of Jesus. But the other nine were here in America. Three of those guys were Americans. There's probably maybe a bit of bias in there for all of historical you know, past. But we don't really have any real personal knowledge of these guys. We know names, but we don't actually know them at all. They did have an effect on the world. The world would probably be different if one of those ten didn't live. Definitely one of the other nine. But they have a minimal effect on us today or an effect on me. So my question is kind of back to you. Who is going to remember you in 50 years, 100 years, 150 years? I feel almost 100% sure that none of us in this room will ever crack time's 100 most significant historical figures. I feel pretty sure probably if they did the top thousand, probably none of us would be in there. Top million, maybe we're having a little bit of hope. Top billion, maybe one or two of us, three of us, maybe are in there. We are insignificant figures here in Greer, South Carolina. So with that depressive state that I have established before you, let's take a look at some normal guys that really in the end are not very memorable But they become memorable because of the one they served and the one they exalted. Let's read Acts chapter 17, starting verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, however, Abby said it was better than that, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So Paul and Silas, these two men along probably with Timothy, they faced difficulty in Philippi. They've now transitioned from Philippi. I think there there might be a map on the screen. They've transitioned from Philippi. They've gone down kind of from the the top uh, where Philippi was. They've gone a little bit left, uh, the big red circle to Thessalonica. And unlike Philippi, there was a synagogue. And so Paul does as he normally does when he gets to a city. He goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And so we're told for three Sabbath days, he reasoned from the scriptures. Three Sabbath days meaning Paul is only there for three weeks And so some crazy stuff happens in this three weeks because in our very own Bible, we have two books written to the church at Thessalonica. We have 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. This is one of Paul's shortest stints, and yet it has such a large impact. So what does Paul show them? What does he explain from the scriptures? Well, verse 3, he explained and proved the necessity of of the suffering of the Christ, the resurrection of the Christ and the fact that the Christ is Jesus. And this isn't just a blind faith that he's calling people to. He's explaining to them. He's showing them what is true and right. And so as Paul reasons, the paradigm is shifting for the Jews. Jews would have thought the Christ, the Messiah, was a promised warrior king who would come and save Israel once and for all. Their enemies would be defeated. The good guys would win. But people's view are being rocked. People are persuaded, the, the language of verse 4, to something new, to some other idea about the Messiah. This Messiah King, this Christ, you know that guy? You know what God's plan for, for eternity past throughout human history for that guy, for this Christ, for this Messiah King? Instead of conquering... It's actually suffering and death. Does this sound like the guy you want to give your life to that you think will save you and change everything? No. It doesn't sound like the Messiah, the King, the Christ that we have been anticipating. But Paul says, Jesus, the guy I've been talking to you about, he is the Christ and he suffered in accordance with God's plan. Maybe the Jews thought we were getting William Wallace or Maximus from from Gladiator, but actually they're getting a suffering servant. But some are persuaded. Some are persuaded by Paul. They're shown from the Old Testament scriptures, oh yeah, the Messiah, the Christ, needed to suffer. So like we saw in the previous chapter, the work of the Spirit of God in people then brings animosity and hostility in others. Verse 5, the Jews were jealous, and they were offended, and they turned hostile. And so they incited a mob to unsettle the city and to cause some problems. The mob attacked the house of Jason. Jason was presumably this leader, maybe one of the first early converts in Thessalonica. He's the one that receives Paul and Silas into his home. And so, verse 6, these Jews wanted to come and find Paul and find Silas, but they were unsuccessful. So what do they do? They drag Jason out from his home, and they beat him. They show a great level of hostility to him. They are they are angry at him, and the mob end up claiming that Paul, Silas, and Timothy, these guys that Jason has received into his home, these three guys have turned the world upside down. These three guys, along with many others who have been Coming to know the Lord Jesus have turned the world upside down. And so this mob actually has great insight. These followers of Jesus have totally turned the world upside down. They did it for the glory of God and through the work of the Spirit. I had Trevor uh, we, we two years ago, he and I were riding together and listened to uh, a podcast by um, this one atheist guy or agnostic guy that that seems to want to believe in Jesus, wants to believe in Christianity, doesn't seem to quite be able to make the step. But his big argument is that the last 2,000 years of secular history has totally been changed because of the Lord Jesus. Because Jesus came, the world was turned upside down. And that's what these guys are attesting to. The way we think about love and grace and mercy and caring for people was not the way, not the uh, general agreed upon way of thinking 2,000 years ago. But Jesus came and turned the world upside down. And so ultimately, these guys, they live for someone else other than themselves. They live for King Jesus. The mob claims that the Christians are following another king. The end of verse 7 in the ESV, it says another King Jesus. But in reality, they're actually saying, no, there's not another king other than Caesar. There's only one king, and the one true king is the Lord Jesus. Jesus, who is the Christ. Let's go on in verse 10. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. Presumably those people who kind of helped him move uh, from Berea. And after receiving a a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So the Christians in Thessalonica sent Paul and Silas away because of the imminent danger, because of the hostility that they're facing. So what do Paul and Silas do? They do the same old, same old. The same things they do anywhere they go. They travel to Berea and they go straight to the synagogue. And this is a hugely instructive point. This might be written up on the screen. The hostility does not stop the proclamation. Hostility against the gospel, a hostility against Christ does not stop Paul and Silas. Maybe they have to move, maybe they have to transition, but they just keep going. They go to the synagogue and they go and continue on proclaiming Christ and him crucified. But they had a very different experience in Thessalonica when they went to the synagogue. The Jews they interact with are nobler. They're they're kinder. They're more receptive. They're not inciting mob violence. And so these Jews receive what Paul and Silas teach on with eagerness and with excitement. And presumably, Paul and Silas, they would go in and they would teach. They would proclaim about Jesus And then the language that's used is the Jews examined the scriptures to see if what Paul and Silas were saying was really actually true. And so I love this. What a a testament on how to discern truth and teaching. The word examine um, in verse 11 is plural. They're doing it together. They're doing it in community. This is a clear example from scripture of having an informed and reasonable faith the hearers listen to a claim and they make a genuine effort I think that's an important part to claim they're making a genuine effort to try to understand and examine the claims that Paul and Silas are making they use the scripture not simply blind faith not simply personal opinions they use the scripture to see what the right response would be and so my question for you is do you do the same both believer and unbeliever, these claims that I'm standing up here making to you, do you examine them with reason and with genuine effort to try to understand them? Or have you become so hardened by the truth of the gospel that you're unwilling to give it a fair and reasonable shot? Or maybe are you willing to listen and to examine Some of us in here have been given just an extraordinary gift of faith that's ultimately given by the Spirit. Some of us need very little persuasion or examination or convincing. And if that is the case, praise God for it. And yet we still wanna love God with our mind and know and understand him for who he is. I talk often about uh, my wife, Casey, that she has taught me a ton about faith since we have gotten married about seven and a half years ago. She, by far, has more faith and has the gift of faith more than I do. We'll be struggling with something. I'll be just, like, stressed out to the absolute maximum about whatever it is. We've moved a couple times. We've moved across seas. We've, you know, battled through a number of different things, and I will just be stressed. And I'll come, and I'll kind of, you know, ask her about it. I'll try to kind of just get some help, get some encouragement, and she'll just be like, I'm not worried about it at all. It's great. Like the Lord's working. God's got it. There's no worries. Like God is in control. My wife has a gift of faith while I'm over here, stressed out, worried, anxious about different things. And that has been an encouragement to me to just grow in trusting in the Lord. But some of us ask a ton of questions and we want every answer to every question. But let me free you up. This is, it's not possible to have every answer to every question. You will never, ever have all your questions answered. It is literally impossible. No one has perfect knowledge or perfect insight, but I think this passage has something extremely helpful to teach us. We want to reason from the Scriptures. We want to explain. We want to prove. We want to persuade. We want to examine Perfect proof for anything does not exist. So let's reason, let's examine together in community with the help of the Holy Spirit. That's part of the beauty of why we are all together. When the pastors get up here and teach, we're not simply asking you to believe us just because I said it, because we said it. My hope is that every time I preach, every time the pastors preach, is you can go home this afternoon, you can sit down, you can start to talk about the sermon, you can maybe pull open your passage You know, after lunch, and you can look and see, oh yeah, I see how Aaron got to these conclusions. It wasn't big jumps, it wasn't just out of nowhere. There's wisdom in examining the scriptures together with grace and understanding. And in many ways, the 200 of you combined are way smarter than me all by myself up here. I'm up here to to teach, to, to do what the Lord has instructed me to do over this past week or two. And yet we want you to examine the scriptures to be sure what is said is true. A primary reason we have the community, we have our community groups. We want the pastors to set the pace on our teaching, to set the pace on our vision. That's the position the Lord's put us in. But we also know that the Spirit is working in the 184 members of our church as we examine the Scriptures together. Verse 12. So it says here that, that many believed. It just tells us that people believed. What did they believe in? It's presumably similar to what the people believed in in Thessalonica. They believed that the Christ must suffer and rise from the dead and that this Christ is Jesus. I want you to take a note of just all the people who have come to faith in chapter 16 and chapter 17. Chapter 16, we're told that Lydia, a slave girl, and a Gentile jailer, these kind of just nobodies, these people that we would never ever think about, have come to faith. Chapter 17, verse 4, Jews, Greeks, and leading women have come to faith. And then chapter 17, verse 12, many important women, and then also these men as well. This news about Christ is for everyone. It is for all. The gospel is for all. We are all equal before the cross. All of us have sinned, and all of us need Christ equally. Verse 13, unfortunately, while Paul may have thought he'd gotten away from the hostility of the Thessalonians, unfortunately, he had not. The, the guys in Thessalonica, the Jews, they hear about what Paul's teaching, what's happening. in Berea, all these people that are coming to faith. And so they take the 100-mile journey to go find Paul and to shut him down, to slow him down. And they essentially do the same thing. They incite a mob again. It's interesting to think that creating this agitation was probably not hard to do. It's not really hard to agitate people. It's not really, it wouldn't really be that hard for me to get up here and to agitate you. Some believe Paul and wanted to follow Jesus. But for others, they're being confronted with something they do not want to hear. When you are confronted with something you do not want to hear, we get agitated. You think about these statements that Paul's making. The Christ has to suffer. No way. I don't want to believe that. The Christ is a, is a warrior king. The Christ is going to rise from the dead. Not a chance, because he's not going to die. The Christ is that dude, you know, Jesus from Nazareth. Nope, that's not him. That guy is king, and you have to give your life to him. You got another thing coming. That's not the guy I'm following as king. The Christ had to suffer for your sins. That makes no sense. It's probably what people are thinking. People are getting agitated. You can see how people would get upset and angry. None of us like being confronted. But Jesus, the gospel, and his kingship confronts us. And so Paul is sent away again for his safety. But Silas and Timothy, for some reason, are able to remain behind and continue to minister. I love verse 6. It talks about... These men have turned the world upside down. Who are these guys? Why did they turn the world upside down? These guys are just nobodies. They've become somebodies because of who they follow and who they give their life to. And so this is kind of my, my main point this morning. It should be on the screen. Your life is not your own. Your life actually has nothing to do with you. Your life is to be poured out for Jesus, the one who is the Christ. It is to be poured out for others. We operate in our culture, in our time, in our day, thinking about me first. My life is about me, my dominion, my kingdom. And yet it's all hevel, the word in Ecclesiastes for vapor. It's all going away. So again, my question to the Christians in the room, who is going to remember you personally? Probably no one. Who is going to remember Christ turning the world upside down with normal guys like you and me? Everyone's going to remember that. Time magazine put him number one. Why is that? Why would this secular magazine put him number one? Because he's not ultimately simply a man, but he is God in flesh who has totally turned the world upside down through normal guys and girls like you and me. Jesus is the true king. There is no other king. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. This little section is talking specifically about sexual immorality, but I think the truth rings uh, is helpful for us here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? This is the important phrase. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You were bought by God through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Jesus, through his spirit and his people, has turned the world upside down. How has he done it? Through the proclamation of Jesus being the king who is also the suffering Christ. Way more important than being remembered in the future on this earth is being remembered in eternity. Being remembered in the book of life. Having our name written by our creator in the heavens. Revelation 20, Luke chapter 10. So going back to to verse 3, it says Christ must suffer. This is news that is paradigm shifting 2,000 years ago. And I pray that it will change your world. I pray that it will turn your world upside down. The good news is that Jesus suffered for our sins and was raised from the dead. This Jesus is the Christ He's the Messiah. He's the promised and anointed Savior of all people. But he saved in a way that turned the world upside down. The people expected a warrior king, and we got a warrior king who does execute justice and judgment. He will return again as a full warrior king, ruling and reigning. But we also received a kind, gracious, merciful king, A king who would die for us. A king who would live and then be crucified on the cross. The only one to perfectly live ever in the history of humanity. The number one most memorable guy in history. The one guy who didn't deserve death died for you and for me. He paid it all. I loved when we were singing earlier, I think the song was Jesus Paid It All. I never know the name of any song ever. Uh, don't ever ask me to name any song because I, I, I literally can't do it. Um, but Jesus paid it all. It was incredible. Nick and Katie back off of their mics and we just get to sing it together that Jesus has paid it all. What a testament. What a, what a beautiful picture of the gospel. Broken people like you and me gathered together on this random Sunday morning in Greer, South Carolina, singing the praises of King Jesus. I got a text this morning from um, Stephen Reagan. He's uh, one of the pastors at Riverside Baptist Church over on Suba Road. Uh, he works for the Three Rivers Baptist Association, which is our local association. He's in North Africa uh, this for, for a week on a mission trip, sent out from Mountain Creek Baptist, another one of our kind of partner churches in the area. And he, he just sent me a text, just got done worshiping our Savior with a house church in North Africa praying for you guys as Ridgewood Church gathers this morning. I mean, just how incredible that already today millions, how many millions and millions and millions of people are gathering or have already gathered to worship the one true king who has turned the world upside down by normal people like you and me, by people being faithful to share the gospel with their friends, their families, their coworkers, their neighbors, Maybe we're not going to be Paul and Silas and go from city to city to city preaching. And yet I know you have a neighbor. I know you have a coworker, I know you have a family member that you can begin praying for, that you can engage in the gospel with. Ultimately, the gospel confronts us. I think that will be on the screen. The gospel confronts us, all of us. Why? Because Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. That can make you mad and angry and incite violence within you, or that can radically change everything about your heart and about your life. And my prayer is that you will actually take the time to use the language that's used in this scripture, to examine, to, to be persuaded, to look and see what God has said. Examine the scriptures. Examine your life. Examine the lives of those Around you and see what is true. Christians in the room, one of one of the beauties that we have, that this gathering this morning is a beautiful evangelistic tool. Because we are just broken people singing about the one perfect Savior. You are a sinner in desperate need of salvation. Most think that Christianity is about living a life of good works. I'm a good person. I'm doing good things. And that somehow ensures that you get to heaven. Thinking about like a almost like a the TV show The Good Place, I need to do more good than I've done bad. As long as I have enough good points, I'll go to the good place and hopefully I won't have too many bad points. Now works matter. What we do matter. But we are not saved by our works. Hear that very 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 clearly. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by God's grace, by Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 6, Jesus who bought us with a price. Jesus who has lived a perfect life, died the death that we deserved, and been raised again on the third day. We are saved by grace through faith, by putting our belief in the Lord Jesus. And what do you need to be saved from? You need to be saved from your sin. Audrey and I, we've just been working through a little book, a a catechism book, and we've been talking about the question, what is sin, recently. Audrey is my three-year-old daughter. And our answer is breaking or not conforming to God's law or to God's word or to God's commandments. A standard exists, whether you like it or not, All of us operate with some standard, and the standard is ultimately given by God. And all of us need to be saved from us falling short of that standard because we are sinners. Unbeliever in the room. If you if you aren't following Christ, if you are searching and not sure, do I believe in Jesus? Maybe I believe he was a good person. Maybe I believe he had good teaching. Maybe I believe he was a, a nice guy, but I'm just kind of searching out. I pray that you would examine the scriptures and see if Jesus is worth following. Read the, the book of John. Read the entire Bible. Read the scriptures, and see what is true. Do it with a, with a friend. Do it with whoever brought you or invited you. Because Jesus gives eternal life, but he will also judge those who are against him. If you're a Christian in the room, if you are just a normal, everyday person, let's go and let's be used by Jesus to help continue to turn the world upside down. Paul experiences both receptivity and hostility to the gospel. And I think we can expect the same. You can expect the same. I can expect the same. Some people are going to be receptive, and some people are going to be extraordinarily hostile. But we don't know unless we go try. So let's go pray. Let's spend time with the Lord in prayer, asking for opportunities to share, praying for our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, and then let's go engage. And then 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, I desire to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let's go and proclaim this Lord, this King, Jesus Christ, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a death, that he was crucified for you and for me, and he was raised again on the third day. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we come to you so grateful for this morning, so grateful for the time to look into your word and to see Christians that have gone before us like Paul and Silas and Timothy and Jason and the uh, church at Thessalonica and the church at Berea, Lord, to, to, to see the gospel preached, to see hostility happen and yet to see receptivity happen. Lord, we we struggle so much with fear of man, fear of what our neighbors are going to say about us, our coworkers, our friends, our family. Lord, I pray that you would help us to engage with those around us. Would we be a city on a hill? Would we be a light that would shine in the darkness? Lord, would we be eager to proclaim you and you crucified Jesus? Help us to walk closely with you. Lord, help us to have a craving for you, a deep desire for you. Lord, help us to trust in you. Help us to put off our sin and to put on Christlikeness. And Lord, help us to go and to proclaim. And Lord, when we face hostility, when we face trials that no doubt will come, Lord, I pray we would do it with with grace and with wisdom as Paul and Silas and Timothy and Jason and all of these Christian brothers and sisters do. And yet, Lord, would we not be afraid? Would we not be afraid to tell about the one true King, Jesus? Lord, we pray that you would help us and help grow us, help sanctify us, help purify us. Lord, we are grateful for this time that we've had to spend in your word. We love you. Amen. At this point in our service, we take just a minute or two to reflect and to think. If you are not a believer in the room, I pray that you would just think about what has been taught. Think about if maybe this Jesus is the one true king. And if you are a believer, I pray that you would just sit and think for just one or two minutes and pray and ask the Lord to put one name on your heart that you could pray for, that you could seek out, that you could try to build a relationship with. And maybe this afternoon, maybe next week, it's making some muffins and going engaging a neighbor that you've lived beside for six years and you've barely never met. We want to go and we want to share. The gospel will be received. The gospel will have hostility shown to it. But let's go and be faithful.